0: welcome to the you can make a living in the music industry podcast from nashville tennessee i am your host john martin keith celebrities working class musicians and people who work behind the scenes in all areas of the music industry will share their stories encourage you and give practical advice of ways you can make a living doing what you love in the music industry this episode is brought to you by eden Brook productions Edenbrook Productions is the company I founded to help musicians grow in their craft. Are you a songwriter, but maybe you've been told your songs aren't quite there yet? Or are your songs ready, but you don't feel stage ready? Or maybe music is your passion, but you feel imprisoned by your day job and you don't know what to do next to make your dream a reality. Well, Edenbrook Productions is here to help. We offer consulting services via phone call, Skype, and FaceTime. And for the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast listeners, we're offering an introductory one-hour consultation special. Click on the link in the show notes to contact me, and let's get you making a living in the music industry. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show today. My good friend Mark Irwin is a hit country music songwriter in Nashville. He co-wrote Alan Jackson's Here in the Real World, which was nominated twice for Song of the Year by the Country Music Association. Mark also wrote the hit song Highway Don't Care for Tim McGraw and Taylor Swift, among many others. Mark has been signed to multiple publishing deals throughout his songwriting career. I'm excited for you to listen to our conversation about songwriting and publishing today. All right, hey, I'm here with my friend Mark Irwin. How are you today? I'm good, how are you? I'm good, it's good to see you. We haven't seen each other in a while. It has been a while. It's been a a couple of years, I think, at least. You and I met uh, actually delivering pizzas mm-hmm. at, uh, in Brentwood, and that was a fun time in life. You know, I was out <laughs> on the road touring and part time, and and then when I was coming home from being on the road, you know, I had a job to go to at, mm-hmm. at the time that I needed, yeah. and and I met you there, and found out that you were a songwriter. And anytime I find that out, my ears instantly perk up mm-hmm. because I love writing songs and always looking for people to write with, and. Um, so that was a cool experience just getting to know you that way and then found out I was like wait this dude's a big time songwriter <laughs> and i've no i know your songs on the radio and um so tell me a little bit about for our listeners where you're from and how you got into music to begin with
1: okay uh i'm originally from new york i grew up in the bronx but when people ask me how somebody from the bronx got into country music i usually say well it was the south bronx <laughs> um, nice but i've been in nashville since 1987 and I was lucky when I first came to town, like I think within my third day in town, I got a job at the Bluebird Cafe. Nice, wow. Um, I was working as a busboy barback, and that led to bartending. So I was there about five or six years altogether, and that was just a great outlet for me to meet people in the music business. And sure. I've made some relationships, co-writer relationships that I'm still, people I'm still working with today, Yeah, all these years later.
0: That's awesome. and what got you into country music like from being from south bronx new york <laughs> what was that drew you to country music to was, begin with? you
1: know i was of course i was into music like any other teenager in the late 70s and early 80s and the music i liked was really guitar driven and the stuff that was getting played and popular in those days started getting a little bit more keyboard oriented a little bit more uh, synthesizer pop stuff and through like my love of you know certain artists uh, i got into the southern california sound you know jackson brown the eagles and linda ronstadt and through linda ronstadt i saw the name emily lou harris mm-hmm. so i bought one of her records okay and i just fell in love with it and then i looked at you know back then you had albums that you could look at the right. liner notes yeah of course so i looked up the players and some of the songwriters and it just was like a rabbit hole I fell down and once i heard Uh, It led me to a Merle Haggard record. You know, that was it. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, once I heard a steel guitar, and Merle Haggard's voice and his writing was just amazing. Um, That was it. There was no turning back. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. That's a great story. And as I was, you know, I used to play at open mics down in Greenwich Village, and they were telling me my stuff was really folky, Mm -hmm. uh, which was their term, I guess, for country. Sure. So I just decided, you know, I knew the business was here. I knew the the songwriting business and the uh, recording business was here. So I just packed up the truck and moved to Nashville.
0: Awesome. How long have you been writing
1: songs? You know, once I started learning the guitar, I felt like I was always kind of making things up. I, I would learn songs like I was really good at picking up chord changes. Um, so I was like started throwing in my own words to like melodies of songs that I knew and then i realized you can get arrested for that right <laughs> or sued. so uh, you know i started writing my own but really since i started playing the guitar i wanted to do my own stuff
0: how long have you, you know, have you been playing
1: since i was a teenager since i was probably 15 16 okay. years old okay. you know you'd think i'd be better by now but you know uh, uh, you're actually pretty good <laughs> Thank pretty you. good player Thank so you. Uh,
0: i remember when cuz you and i've written a few mm-hmm. songs together over the years and <clears throat> I remember sitting down the first time and you threw out some lick and I was like, oh, (laughs) this dude knows what he's doing. That's really good. (laughs) And truthfully,
1: over the last few years, you know, um, here in Nashville and co-writing, Pro Tool Rigs and other, um, you know, computer studio stuff has gotten to be really popular. And I just had no interest in learning about that stuff, so I kind of focused more on the guitar and felt like I had more contributions to make that way, Well, yeah. you know, getting better at playing, maybe coming up with some riffs that became signature riffs and, you know, so yeah, I just, you know, guitar nerd. I get it. <laughs> I,
0: I am too, so I understand yeah. that completely. Yeah. So, okay, so once you got to Nashville, did you have any contacts with people before you got to town? No, or was I just, it just... you just show up and here we go?
1: Yeah, actually... Pretty much. Um, I came to town, I, by the time I got to town it was a Saturday, and I, I got a motel on Broadway, I got a motel room in a place on Broadway that's no longer there, and I got the Sunday paper the next day, and um, there were ads back then for roommates wanted, you know, mm. and I don't know if I'd recommend doing that, rooming <laughs> with a stranger these days, but uh, <laughs> you know, I was dumb. I met a guy and I was lucky, and he was a great guy, and you know, we should, we got an apartment together, and um, the one, Name that I had, the one um, organization that I knew of was the Nashville Songwriters Association. Right. Yep. So I went there like uh, as soon as I could, and they told me about a couple of publishing companies, and they told me about the Bluebird Cafe, and that's how I ended up there. Okay. And really, my first night there, I remember clearly a songwriter named Fred Noblock was playing, and I was blown away. I started talking to this lady who turned out to be the manager. And uh, you know she said, come back tomorrow, and I, that's how I got the job so quick.
0: Okay. And so what led you down the trail of writing music when you get to town what was your first contact as a songwriter to make that first connection to kind of get your foot in the door here
1: well excuse me at the bluebird i was lucky enough to be working in in an industry kind of hang with where most 90 percent of the people there were songwriters right and i became friendly with a couple others and oh i met this one guy his name was joe collins uh, we became quick buddies and he turned out to be my first co-writer okay and actually the first guy i got a song recorded with okay um, and just talking to other people networking yeah. i learned about you know different publishers in town who were looking to hear some new songwriters and i got some names and i you know when i wasn't working um, called up some places and i was lucky enough to get some appointments and uh, you know, and it took a while, you know, but it took a lot of appointments and a, and a while of just really focusing on writing every day to build up that muscle, as I say, you know. Yeah. And, but um, it networking is a big help, getting to meet some people and getting going to writer shows in town and uh, meeting other people who are doing what you're doing. Right. There's definitely, I don't know how it is in Hollywood and, and with the acting world, which, you know, some people kind of see similarities. Right. But here, people are really open to sharing, um, hey, so and is looking for a song or so and so is looking for a writer. And So just by networking and meeting people, and, you know, yeah. you find out about a lot of opportunities. Yeah, just building friendships with people yes, and relationships. relationships it's definitely a, a relationship-driven business. Yeah,
0: I talk about that all the time. People are probably getting sick of me saying that all the time <laughs> on this show, but it it's true.
1: Well, you know? and I could tell you some great writers that I've known over the years who have blown opportunities because, whether it was ego or just being arrogant, but you know, they've blown relationships mm-hmm. and along with that opportunities and you know, yeah. they're not around anymore. You, you don't wanna do that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I wanna go back a little bit cause you, you were saying when you first, you're making those connections and mm-hmm. writing with your first co-writer, mm-hmm. but then you started reaching out to publishing companies, trying yeah. to get in the door with some of these people. Walk me through the process a little bit of what it takes. Oh, What's the process of connecting with a publisher to begin with? Like when you reach out to somebody the first time, like what is your, what was your steps to do that? And how would you reach out to them for somebody's listening and thinking, sure. I wanna do this, how do mm-hmm. I do that? And it, it may be different nowadays I, to some degree, I'm not exactly sure.
1: Well, back you know, back then, but. some people would say you need first of all you need to take like your best three or four songs and do elaborate demos and I don't necessarily agree with that. I think if you could do take your best couple of songs and do like a really good clean guitar vocal and just let the song, you know, sell itself. Once you have that, I called places on my own. I said, you know, like I knew it was a company called Ten Ten Music. So uh, they were a new company. I knew they were listening to outside songs through just Folks letting me know that I called up and I forget who it was, but I said, "Hey, so and so recommended I give you guys a shout," and they made an appointment and brought in some songs and we listened. And you know, it didn't happen overnight, but through Ten Ten Music, they were they were also doing management, and through them, I met Alan Jackson. Okay, and they hooked us up to write, and then you know, that, that turned into here in the real world, you know, Which while we were your writing. First, mm-hmm. your 1st my first song is a hit, yeah. That's awesome. And his as well. Yeah. <clears throat> but it was, you know, they were doing publishing and they were doing management, so they hooked us up. And it's still, you know, right now, looking back, it feels like it happened overnight, but it took a while. Sure. You know? Yeah,
0: I mean, few things happen overnight. And yeah. for, for most people, a lot of people don't realize the you know, the overnight success for us that are on yeah. the side of trying to actually get the success, of sorts, that's usually a, a multi-year
1: So I was situation. really lucky that, <laughs> you know, they were starting to like the songs I was bringing in, but they were a new upstart company. So they didn't have the money to like say, hey, come write for us full time. You know, right. pay you a draw, you know. Oh, yeah. So I was still working at the Blueberry at night and still meeting people and getting to hear people. And I'll tell you, being there every night and hearing some people play, I knew I had my work cut out for me because, you know, the, there were a lot of ones that you knew weren't going anywhere, but every once in a while you heard somebody you know, I, I was there the night Tony Arata played the dance for the first time, yeah. and like, I was just like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it was an inspiration to like get better because I'll admit when I first started working at the Bluebird, you know, I was young and I was single and we kind of partied a lot and we stayed there, we stayed out till late at night and I slept a good portion of the day and just got up and went back to work. And I, after a while, I realized this is not why I came to town. Mm-hmm. So, um. Uh, I kind of, you know, disciplined myself to make sure I was writing every day.
0: That's good. Yeah. So your first hit is Here in the Real World with Alan Jackson. What, like when you found out that that song was going to become a number one, like what was your first reaction to that?
1: Well, you know, first off, that song at first was recorded by somebody else. Oh, really? An artist named Tony Perez. Okay. He was on Warner Brothers. It never came out his album never came out. I don't know know exactly what happened, but that happens occasionally. So the song was still available. Alan, you know, uh, subsequently got a a record deal on Arista Records. He cut an album he didn't cut here in the real world and the album was delivered to the label and they said this is good but I think we still need one you know, one song, one identifying kind of song and so the, the president of the company I think his name was Tim Dubois he asked let me hear other songs that you have and one of them was here in the real world and he just said man this one mm. and alan was a little bit afraid of it in the beginning because he thought it might be a little bit too rangy for him to sing okay <clears throat> but they went in and cut it alan put out a first single called blue-blooded woman that didn't do that well and he then he put out here in the real world and you know the skies yeah skies open and the angels sang. yeah but i just think besides the song i think it was a good time for a traditional a song like that, and artist like that, you know, this was like right after Randy Travis kind right. of turned the tides, and you had people like Clint Black were out there doing it, and Alan, and and, uh, and then right after, I think Garth Brooks hit. Yeah. But um, so the feeling of, I knew the song was out. I tell this story because I was still tending bar when the song was out and climbing the charts, and people who were playing the Bluebird, they used to announce it, you know, from the stage or in the round. They would, you know, because it was an industry place, they used to like to point out that, you know. Our bartender this evening has a number 15 song, the number 10 song. And I noticed that uh, people were coming up and congratulating me and ordering their drinks, but they stopped tipping me. (laughs) They thought I was making a fortune. Oh, goodness. So I had to ask them to stop announcing it because I was going broke having a hit song. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Um, But anyway, but it was doing well. I knew it was doing well. And um, I was at a friend's house, and this was before we all had cell phones. And out of the blue, I got a phone call at a friend's house, which was really unusual, and they gave me the phone, and it was Alan. Okay. And he said, I heard, you know, I just wanted to say tomorrow we're going to have the number one song. And he was really sweet, and he said, man, thank you for writing this with mm-hmm. me. Thank you for being part of this. I'm so excited. And so he, like, he had to track me down. He had to, like, I guess somebody knew where I was, yeah. and he made a series of phone calls to find me. That's cool. But, yeah, the rest of that night was pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's awesome. Well, congratulations on that. <laughs> thanks, thanks. B- very belated. Well, no, the <laughs> congratulations. Still, the song but... still means the world to me. Yeah, yeah, and it's still doing great. I mean, it's, yeah. every time it comes out on some compilation or whatever mm-hmm. it is, I and mean, it's, all, it's
1: been recorded a few other times. George Jones recorded it on a uh, an album he did called "Hits I've Missed and One oh, I Didn't," that's which cool. was a real you know honor. And um, Glenn Campbell recorded it. Really, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, he had Alan's publisher at the time. Was a company called Making Music, and Glenn Campbell was one of the primary owners of the company. Um, so he owned a piece of it, you know. And he did an album when he used to play out in Branson, live from Branson. Mm-hmm. So he, he played it. He did great. And I remember telling my mom, who still lived up in New York, and she goes, "Finally, somebody I heard of." Right. <laughs> and nice. I told the Glenn Campbell record. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, over the years, you've written four different publishers. Yes. So once you left that first one um and moved on to the next one Like from there
1: i went to emi
0: okay so can you explain for listeners you know first of all what's the purpose of moving from one publisher to a different one like why would somebody do that just to um
1: to well with? the first publisher 1010 like i said they were a young upstart company and even though we had this hit and as on the management side of the company allen was starting to do well they, didn't, they weren't that fluid. They didn't have the kind of money that was needed to, like, support a writer, say, hey, uh, stop working, we'll pay you uh, to draw. You know, it's, right. it's like, like <laughs> with a car salesman. They give you money, and then they recoup it if you have hits, you know. Right. Yeah. But um, they didn't have the money to get me out of the bartending business. So after a while, I started taking meetings at other places, and having that song— you know, just be a hit, that really helped. That really opened up a lot of doors right. for me. Yeah. But I also had other songs too. So I went to a couple of companies and EMI was being run then by a woman named uh, Celia Froelig and uh, Robin Palmer was the, the plugger. And we just all kind of like fell in love with each other. And uh, they they signed me to a deal which gave me enough, afforded me to be able to give up bartending, and just write every day and also be able to pay my rent and my grocery bill. Yeah. Um, so that was a great relationship for a while because back in those days, you know, country was doing great. A lot of people were recording outside songs. And even if they weren't hit singles, the records were selling so well, you can make a good living just sure. on getting album cuts. Yeah, of course. So it was a good time. But I think, so I think I was there like six or seven years. Okay. And things changed, Celia left. And new people came in, and I didn't have a cut in a year or two, maybe. So it's still a business. So, yeah. I mean, I, I would have stayed, but they, they decided to drop me, okay. you know, after not having. And I understand that, sure. you know. So, and I was lucky enough after they dropped me to be able to get another deal somewhere else. Somebody who heard what I was doing, and even though I hadn't had a cut or a hit lately, mm-hmm. they still believed in, what, in me as a writer and what I was doing to take a chance mm-hmm. and sign me. So um, usually when you're at a company and you have a decent relationship with your publisher, you're gonna stay as long as you can because it's kind of hard to walk away from a catalog that you have there, a catalog of songs. So it's usually when somebody leaves a publisher, it's usually because they got dropped, Okay, I would say.
0: So how long do you typically, uh, are you contracted for if you're at a publisher, you know, if they sign you up? A you know. basic
1: contract, and everything can be negotiated, sure, of course. everything's different, but a basic contract I usually ask for the first option, the first period to be 18 months at least because a year can go by really quickly. Right. So my first, like here, uh, my first option was 18 months. And then they, the company has the option of whether picking you up for another year or dropping you. So usually after that, it's it's every year. Okay. They, they they look at the uh, what they're paying you and any money coming in and decide if they want to keep going. So a contract could be like your first option, First year plus, like, say, two or three options. That it's usually in the public. The publisher's, uh, the publisher usually has the power.
0: Okay. And how many songs do you typically have to write within a year to be able to, do they have a- They used to talk
1: about quotas. I don't know if they talk about it so much these days, but it used to be either like, back then it was a lot of two-way co-writes, and these days it's a lot of three-way co-writes. So it's usually 12 songs, 100%, or 24 co-writes. But if you're writing every day, if you're doing it every day, you're going to write more than that. Of course. You might not demo them all, but you're going to write more than that. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you're really doing it.
0: Yeah. Is there an average amount of songs that need to get placed on an album for, with somebody during that year? Or Well, during these that- days,
1: you know, like I said, you know, just getting an album cut doesn't necessarily generate that much income. Mm-hmm. So, you know, singles are where it's at in country. You still, you know, um, but there's also there... Movies and TV shows and other streams of income mm-hmm. from songs. Uh, here at Sony, they have a, a sync department, which just it's a, you know SYNC. Right. They try to synchronize um, songs to be used in movies or TV commercials or TV shows, right. and and when they're used there, you know they negotiate a price and a contract for those, and so you have you know that money coming in as well. Yeah. So, but if you have nothing going, you know, usually a company will you know at least give you two years, two and a half years to get to get something going. Mm-hmm. You know, after that, if you have you really had any luck, they might reevaluate it and sure. they might decide, you know, it's not worth it to them financially yeah. to keep going on.
0: So nowadays, because the business has changed so much since the 80s and 90s at sort of the heyday of, uh-huh. of music and, and country music. But nowadays, you know, with the digital revolution and, you know, Spotify and all these things and money is just not nearly what it what yeah. it used to be. Yeah.
1: Well, these days, there's a lot more writing with artists. Okay. You know, uh, because the business has changed to the point where it's a lot harder to get outside songs cut, like meaning a song that the artist hasn't written. Mm -hmm. Um, These days, it seems like when an artist gets signed to, they usually have their own group of friends or posse, as I call it, of guys that they're writing with before they even had their deal and they usually kinda of come in and they continue doing that and a lot of those writers who are friends say, look here there's a, a, an artist named Mitchell Tenpenny, he just got signed Sony, he had a hit last year with a song called Drunk Me. Um, and I know, for example, some of the folks that he was writing with before he had a deal, he's still writing with them, so those guys are getting publishing deals because they, they're, so, they're aligned with an artist and like chances are they're gonna be all over his record and hopefully have a single or two right um people are getting signed that way as opposed to just coming in off the street just being a great songwriter Mm -hmm. you know um those right those writers get signed too but not i don't think as much as young green writers writing with um potential artists
0: yeah so who um who are some of the artists that you have written for and have hits with
1: well of. I was lucky enough because I was still my career still was at a time where like artists were smart enough to you know like just to find great songs right um, so I was lucky enough like well I did write Alan Jackson really is a songwriter right so yeah. we, we we wrote we had two we, the day we wrote here in the real world we also wrote another song called Till I Was Loved By You that was recorded by Shelley Wright it was okay. her first single okay. she, you know? oh nice yeah that was great um, but I've had songs recorded by Blake Shelton by Tim McGraw, George Jones, like I said, who else? I mean, we well, got, got a Garth cut. I got a Garth cut. Remember yes. that? The Garth one was funny because um, he put it. They'll put a song on hold, asking you like, which means they're really seriously considering it. So that means asking you not to pitch it to someone else in the meantime. Right. So he put that song on hold, and he had it on hold for a year. And when the album he was working on came out, we went to the album release party. My co-writer and me. And we saw the album, and our song wasn't on there. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Which happens, you know? Yeah. So a few yeah. days later, though, Garth, um, he sent us both a check f- f- for, like, sorry for taking the song out of commission for so long. He was really sweet. That's, and just that's really man. nice. And then, like, years later, he did a um, an album for Walmart, and mm-hmm. it was, like, a four-CD thing, and right. one of the CDs was songs... The, it's called the Lost Sessions, and there were songs that he cut that never came out, and right. our song was on there. Yeah. So it went on to sell two or three million copies. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I remember that because yeah. we were that's working, when we were working.
0: We were doing delivering pizzas together, mm-hmm. and and you told me it's like, hey man, I got this yeah. Garth thing yeah. that's coming out, and gave me a copy of it, and I was just like, dude, that's so awesome, <laughs> you know. And I think that's probably what helped you allowed you to not have to come back and do pizzas again. Well, for the a pizza while. thing, <laughs> the pizza thing, I will say
1: that I was I left one publisher. That company was kind of falling apart, and I had another year on my contract, so I asked out of that contract, and I did get another deal at a new company that was called Red Vinyl, but they weren't opening their doors for like six months. Oh, okay. So, I, I you know, just for some, just have you to know, have something. some income, yeah. yeah. I, worked, I did the delivery, and let me tell you something, Brentwood's a good place to deliver pizza. It sure was. <laughs> it was at the time, at least, yeah. but yes.
0: that's awesome. And you also had... Um, you said you did a Tim McGraw, The the Highway, mm-hmm. Don't Care? Yeah. That, that's one that you, co- that, you co-wrote? Mm-hmm. I
1: co-wrote that with my friend Josh Kier and these, these brothers who are like really hot riders, called the Warren Brothers, Brad yeah. and Brett Warren yeah. So the four of us wrote that. Um, and, you know, when we wrote it, we kind of put it in this section, envisioning for a female vocal, like it's supposed to be like a soft voice coming through the radio. Um, and we thought that Faith Hill would sing it. Tim loved the song, but Faith didn't want to do it. And we thought that was the end of it. And then Tim had the brilliant idea of asking Taylor yeah. and she said yes. And you know, it was awesome, That's cool. but, um, you know, so Tim cut, they cut a track, they cut his vocal, they sent it to, uh, um, Keith Urban and right. he did a guitar part. And then I think it took about six or seven months before Taylor put her voice on it. Okay. So that was murder, you know, waiting all that time.
0: Yeah. But it was a good outcome though. Yes. And I, <laughs> I even, you
1: know, my daughter was about 10, <laughs> I tell this story anytime I play it cause it's true. Um, my daughter was about 10 or 11 years old, and I knew she'd to Taylor Swift. You know, right. what, what 10 or 11-year-old girl back then didn't. Right. But I didn't tell her about it until it was a done deal, you know, because okay. things can change overnight. So when I finally heard that Taylor did her part, I raced home and I knocked on her bedroom door and I said, Rosie, you're never going to believe this, but Taylor Swift sang one of my songs today. <laughs> and she just kind of looked at me with this weird look on her face She said, Daddy, you couldn't get Demi Lovato? Uh, she really said oh my goodness (laughs) oh my god God. (laughs) (laughs) like uh, this huge moment is like like, deflated that was the the end of me trying to impress my kids (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) yeah and that was all that was like the stars really aligned for that you know Tim liked the song so much that he went out on a limb to ask Taylor about it Um, and as big a star Tim McGraw's you know, was one of my favorites all along because I always thought he his songs were just amazing. He just had a great year for great songs over yeah. the years. You know, lived like he were dying. Right. You know, so many great songs. So to be a part of his catalog was really is really a thrill. And I've, he's recorded about four other songs of mine, but that that's, was the biggest one. That's great. Yeah. So, uh,
0: as a songwriter, what do you, what do you tell, new songwriters that are coming into town that you might meet with and. I know you working with and Ward.
1: Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. So
0: she and I yeah. met. Um, she's a, a fairly new artist.
1: I just saw her yesterday. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. So we actually played a show together uh-huh. um, a few months ago and met and found out that, that she knew you and that you were working with her. And um, I thought, man, that's so cool. I was like, I know Mark. We've known yeah. each other for years and have written together. Um, you know, so, you know, she's moving into town and becoming an artist and a songwriter. And so just for... For artists that are or songwriters that are coming in trying to kind of get their feet wet what advice do you do you give them again because it's a different world than it was back in the 80s and 90s so like for nowadays
1: you know it's hard to say i mean um coming into town cold is a tough you know hill to climb but there's a lot of opportunities there's a lot of people here Willing to help steer you um, again, the National Songwriters Association is a great organization for new artists in town. You know, they they set up um, like meetings to play your songs for publishers or um, you know ASCAP. I, I, I joined ASCAP. You know, that's the um, yeah. uh,
0: performing rights performance organization. Right organization.
1: Thank you. And like through the way I met Marin actually was I was they they asked me to do a workshop. You know, as a veteran songwriter with a couple of young writers that they. You know, because they want to help writers blossom and get noticed. So they took about ten writers that they really felt confident, you know, and and they hooked them up with me, and we had, like, a don't know how many classes we had, like three or four, and Madden was in that. And we talked about writing. We talked talked about the experience of the writing room, networking, um, you know, meetings with publishers. You know, always don't do anything. Don't have a meeting and present yourself until you have what you think is your best. You know, you only have one chance to make a first impression, you know. Um, And Madden played some stuff and some of the others, and I think they were really good. And uh, so I let her, you know, I gave her a number of a few publishers in town, and I said, by all means, tell them I mentioned for you to call. Mm -hmm. Not that my name is gonna, you know, get you a deal, but it might get you in a You know, I think it really helps if you have somebody you know, recommend you. You know, call. Um, I was lucky years ago. Uh, somebody at ASCAP made a couple of calls to publishers on my behalf and got me a publishing deal through that, you know? So, I mean, there's a lot of people, a lot of ways to find champions Mm -hmm. in this town. Again, it's about relationships. NSAI is a great way to, they they have a way of like, introducing you to other writers or publishers or producers. And, you know, sometimes you just click with somebody. Um, Taking meetings with ASCAP or BMI or CSAC helps. And going to writer shows and, you know, like write-arounds? Uh, yeah, yeah, get network, and there are plenty in town that are free to go to, and you know, try to get up there and play as much as, as possible. And if you see somebody doing something that you that really gets to you for whatever reason, you know, try to try to start up a relationship. You know, you know, uh, ask about writing or something like that. You know, because. Um,
0: and that's how you and I got to write yeah. together. I mean, yeah. we were working doing doing yeah. pizzas together, but you know, and found out that you write. Yeah, and I was like, hey man, I'm a writer, and yeah. You know, and so I just had to ask the question. Right. All I could right. do is say no, but exactly. you, don't, you know, you one's
1: to Exactly, no one's gonna knock on your door and say, hey, you wanna be a hit songwriter. You right. gotta go out and make it happen. You gotta be proactive. Yeah. And Nashville still, it's, the loop has tightened from when I got here, you know. Sure. But there's still opportunities and everybody wants to discover the next great songwriter. Yeah. You know, all the publishers in town, they wanna, you know, you are gonna get at least one shot, you know, and hopefully, like I said, you'll be able to present your, your best self.
0: Right. So I want to back up just a minute um, back to the publishers, different publishing companies. Yeah. So when you leave a publishing company and you've got a catalog of music with them mm-hmm. and then you go to somebody else and you've created a catalog with them and then you've left them and now you're at somewhere else, <laughs> what happens to those songs? Are they still getting pitched?
1: Hopefully you know or I could I still have the option of pitching them And sometimes when you do well and you make it you know you start with a new publisher, you want to get co-published. You know, So you own some of your publishing right. and you have the option when you're leaving someplace or even before you leave, that you can sell off your catalog, your share of the catalog. You know, when you've had a couple of hits and you own half, 50% of the publishing, there are other companies who will want to buy, you know, pay you, you know, good money. And that's the way a lot of songwriters besides royalties and residuals, they make a good portion of money from selling catalogs that they own, some are publishing on.
0: So can you explain that a little bit more, like a little more detail on, yeah, what know, does that mean when you're- st-
1: Starting out, you know, starting out when you're young, you're not gonna get Co-Pub. So if you sign a deal, a publishing deal with a, a publisher, they're gonna pay you a draw, like a monthly draw to live on. Okay. But, you know, and the way you get paid, if you have a single, say, you get paid from ASCAP for performances, Mm -hmm. and you get paid through mechanicals for sales. Usually a publisher will recoup that draw through the mechanical, the sales mechanical, Mm -hmm. and they'll leave your um, ASCAP, your PROs alone. Mm -hmm. But at that point, they own 100% of your publishing, and you own 100% of your writer's share. So you split it, so it's 50-50. And if you co-write, then they own 100% of your Publishing, which is 50% of the song. Right. Um, but when you start doing well and you start having hits um, and you renegotiate with a pub or, or either with that publisher or sign a new deal, you have the uh, clout to ask for co publishing, co ownership of your publishing, not just your writer's share, but co owner of your publishing right. too. So if you have 50% co pub on a song, co publishing on a song, so say you wrote a song with somebody else. So the publishing is cut in half. Now, you and your publisher split that 50%, Right. you know, of your, your side of the song. Right. So you'll own 25%. But if it's a hit song, we're talking about good money, right. you know. Um, so and if, if you've done, done that for a couple of years and if you had a couple of hits in that catalog and you own 50% of the publishing of it, that has a real value. And at, at some point, you know, um, another publisher will want to purchase it from you. And we're talking, I mean, I know, you know, with hits and now, you know, we're talking hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars, mm-hmm. you know, to pay for catalogs.
0: So another publisher, let's say you're moving from one published. One you don't even have to
1: leave. You could, you know, if your option is coming out, you could you can sell that catalog and start a new uh, catalog with the same publisher. You know, you could sell your share, um, even if you're still there. Okay. But for me, you know, I've had hit and miss over the years. My You know, I'm definitely... Uh, an early, I tell people this, it was 22 years between my first number one and my second number one. Really? And then it was five weeks between my second and my third. Okay. That's better. Yeah. <laughs> but um, So I've had different publishing deals, and each of them might have had, like, one hit, and then whatever, you know, a cold spell, a couple of years might pass, and I didn't have anything else, so I would leave there. So just having one hit in, like, wasn't enough clout necessary. To uh, get co-pub at my next deal, so I have a lot of catalogs in town with different publishers that they own 100% of the publishing. So it's in their best interest to keep pitching those songs and try to get them recorded. Yeah. But often back catalogs, as they're called, they kind of I don't say that they get forgotten, but you know when a publisher signs a new writer, they're really trying hard, focused on that writer, and they. It's hard to kind of look back, even right. if they're sitting on you know a great catalog of songs, yeah um I left one company only because there was some weirdness in the company, and for like a year and a half there was no plugger. There was nobody pitching the songs,
0: and I was writing,
1: and I think you know it was my one of my best catalogs, and I think some of those songs just like never got a chance so I've something else you can do is hire an independent song plugger and give them a CD or a playlist or whatever of your songs and let and make a deal with them hey if you get this song cut I'll pay you this much amount you know then they can take that kind take of like a a percentage market. yeah yeah of your share whether it's the writer share or your royalties or you just want to pay them out, out of pocket whatever deal you make with them but there are independent song pluggers who you can hire to pitch songs that you feel aren't getting out there enough
0: so how would you recommend? working with a, a song plugger if you're having to do it directly would, do you prefer to do give them a percentage of something or to pay them directly like what would you do if it was you you're the person in that position I'd rather give
1: them a percentage if I owned some of the publishing like say if I own 50% of the publishing say I you know give me 10% of the publishing and a bonus okay. cash bonus for okay. every song you get cut okay. some people some might ask for like with a being a writer they might ask for a draw like some upfront money to into um give them incentive to go out there and pitch so they might ask for like oh, $500 a month or something like that you know each one's different I think I've never had to hire one <laughs> Yeah. so each one's different um, but I think you could always negotiate the deal okay. with somebody especially if they really believe in your songs
0: yeah I mean that's good information for listeners to know that, that even if you're an independent writer right. even if
1: you're an independent you don't have a publishing deal if you own all your publishing mm-hmm. you can hire somebody just to pitch it and work out a deal with them yeah but you do need to register. If you're going to try to get songs recorded in the mainstream, you do need to try to, you know, join one of the PROs, ASCAP, BMI, or CSAC. Because they're the other ones that are going to be collecting the money for you Right. Um, if you have a single out there.
0: Yep. Or anything. Or TV or, yeah, or right, anything, exactly, like, yes. anything like that. Yeah. Or even uh, when you're performing live. Yeah. yeah. You know, you uh, send yeah. in your set list and then... Yeah. You get paid, and a lot of people don't take advantage. Yeah, I know.
1: Um, I didn't take advantage of it either. But a few years back, I had a song with Jimmy Buffett actually recorded. Oh yeah, I remember and, that. Um, he was. It was the, like the name of the tour, and he was playing it every night. And like a couple years later, I went back to ASCAP, and we did talk about that, and I did get a check for like like um, uh, what do you call it? A retroactive check for some of that stuff a okay. live performance.
0: Nice. I need to. I, I. I'll be honest. I need to actually better about that because you don't think about it you know and when you get out. busy and yeah but when you're playing out all the time like as an artist mm-hmm. you know I'm out playing all the time and I need and if I,
1: someone I don't know are you playing out where other people are making money like they're selling tickets and you're getting to play and they're making money from you playing uh
0: because sometimes not if not somebody's all
1: making money off of you playing that's when you deserve to get your performance royalties yeah, yeah. if it's nobody's making any money on the deal then I mean yeah. You know, it's all, you know, just a faith, good faith. Yeah. Stuff.
0: Sure. Yeah. So now you are signed with Sony ATV. Mm-hmm. That's where we're hanging out today is in their writing room. And so how long have you been signed with Sony?
1: Um, I've been here now 18 months. I just started my second, I mean, the first month of my second option. They picked up my option to least for another year. Thank okay. God. And they were really great. I came in. I came here a year and a half ago. I left a company that was just really disappointing, and I, you know, came here and you know they knew my track record. They knew I knew how to navigate the waters of meeting people and writing with people, and you know, definitely I definitely fall into the veteran songwriter category, which which is good and bad. And they, you know, they liked what they heard and they liked me and they, you know, definitely took a chance. And uh, so through this year and a half. These days it's pretty hard to get an outside song cut. There are a few writers still doing it, but for the most part, most of the stuff you're hearing on country radio, the artist or the producer is connected to the song in some way. It's just the way it's happened. You know, I mean it was always it was happening like that in LA and New York for years and Nashville's finally catching on to that. Mm-hmm. So, um, Sony has had has the clout enough to hook me up with a lot of, of young artists. Artists who were either signed to labels or they're they believe it will be signed to labels and trying to develop those relationships and you know you don't click with everybody but there's a couple who i have come to feel now not only are good writing partners and they're great singers but they, I consider them friends because yeah. you know you can't help but, but be in a room with somebody writing songs and spilling your guts or you know a few times and not like developing a relationship right. you know more than just professional sure so through Sony um, you know where other company might not have had the ability to hook me up with a few of these young artists that was a real benefit being here
0: okay and so that's a that's an advantage compared to being with some of the smaller more boutique who might not have access publishers. to those artists okay. to, hook,
1: to get me in the room with those artists in the first place gotcha yeah awesome because a lot a couple of those artists you know that i'm that i've, that I've built up a relationship with they right here as well mm-hmm. you know okay sony has the uh you know, being a worldwide organization, you know, they have not just writers, but, you know, artist writers as well. Right,
0: yeah. Do you have any last bit advice for any writers um, that are looking to make a living in this industry?
1: Yeah. A, don't get discouraged and write as much as you can because I think the more you write, the better you get at it, you know. So if you have time, I know a lot of people have to work you know, pay the bills, but if you can find it, even if you're not doing it every day, like find an hour, a day, half hour to like, even if it's just like come up with a couple of lines, Mm -hmm. you know, I say write as much as possible because you're only gonna get better at it. Um, I'd say wait until you really feel like you have something special before you take a meeting, especially with a publisher, you know, because like I said, you only have one chance. You know, if you come back, if if you have your first meeting and you didn't impress them, you didn't blow them away, they might not want to take a second meeting. So I think you want to, you know, when you really feel you have something good, you know, I'd say wait until that moment before you try to get into a publisher. And don't just bring them one song. You know, anybody can get lucky writing one song. You might even get lucky writing two songs that turn into hits. But uh, if you can write four or five, you know, then you're probably a writer. Sure. (laughs) And I'd say too, you know, for someone just starting out, you don't have to spend thousands of dollars on elaborate demos. If you're just sitting there writing a song on a piano or on a guitar, and you can, you know, perform the song like that—a clean guitar vocal or piano vocal—I um, think is enough. Okay. If you're writing real pop stuff that has that has more to do with the track and the feel, that's something else. But that's not what I do, so I'm not. Right. Countries I, I don't know how to um, advise on that sure. so much. And I think you know, listen and try to meet as many people who are writing and try to you know. Inspiration comes from like you know being impressed with somebody else's work. Mm-hmm. I used to, I couldn't wait to, when I worked at the Bluebird and it was a good show that night. I couldn't wait to get home and pick up my guitar and try to write. It was just, I was just that you know inspired. Yeah, so uh, inspiration is important.
0: Yeah, okay. let me ask you real quick. Um, if you're doing a demo, or, or even if an artist has put out you know an indie album and they're wanting to pitch to a publisher, you know for their songs to be recorded by somebody else. How important is the the person singing the vocal quality? You know, because it's all about the song. We can always say it's all about the song, and they can you wanted somebody
1: who's gonna sell the song,
0: right? And I don't. I mean, do they have to be Carrie Underwood? They don't have to be Carrie Underwood,
1: but they got to be good and got to you know and sound like the genre. Like, um, I don't sing my own demos. So if I've written a song, if I'm demoing a song that I didn't write with an artist, I just wrote with another writer, and neither of us (laughs) sing, we try to find somebody. Who has the same kind of quality as some of the singers who are out on the radio okay. today? Because those are the people to we'll be pitching it to, yeah. and they they want to hear as, or the producers or the A and R people at their label want to hear as much as they can. See, hey, well, will this work on radio? Yeah, you know. Yeah. So if you don't sing very well, but some people who think they don't sing very well are real stylists. I mean, right. You know, look it, at yeah, a niche. or somebody like that. Yeah. You know, yeah. And these days, I think people are open to finding something unique. Sure. You know. Yeah. But that being said, as long as the melody and the lyric can be heard, I think that's the most important part. Because if a, if a publisher likes a song, they can always shell out the money to, to do it. Has somebody else do it? Do it. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Man, thank you so much for your sure. time. Thank this you. This is awesome getting to reconnect with you. Yeah, and, you too. And just learn more about you and your story, and be able to
1: share your expertise with. I would say another advice is don't be afraid to ask people. What, if they want to write, or if they, if you can come in and lit, play them songs, because you know, sometimes we're a little bit shy or a little bit nervous. But you know, if you want to get things out in this world, you got to ask for them. Right? You know, it's just you know, ninety percent of the time, no one's just gonna give it to you. Yeah. You got to ask. Yeah. So don't be shy about that. You know, make well, your presence known.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, we've written a few times over the years together, and yeah. I want to write with you again. Sure. So sure. there it is. It's on tape. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it again. It's on digital. We're we'll doing it, it's on digital. <laughs> we'll do it again sometime. Cool. But. Again, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Thank you. And I'm excited for people to get to hear um, what you've had to share today. So, good to see you. You too. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. I really hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mark as we talked about songwriting and publishing in the music industry. And I really hope you take the information that he's given and that you will apply it to your life and to your career as well. Remember, Edenbrook Productions is here to help if you need consulting services via phone call, Skype, or FaceTime. Be sure to let us know how we can help you begin to make a living in the music industry.